I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. The CDC says we're experiencing an upsurge in COVID-19 infections. Why haven't we improved indoor air quality? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. A hundred and fifty years ago, Florence Nightingale insisted on the importance of fresh air for TB patients. Today, we seem to have forgotten her important lessons. Fresh air is still critically important for reducing airborne disease transmission. When you enter a store, pharmacy, doctor's office, theater, or bank, you have no way of knowing whether the space is well ventilated. Better indoor air quality could help reduce the chance of catching flu or RSV as well as COVID-19. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, improving air quality to avoid airborne germs. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, COVID-19 has not gone away. Although rates are lower than they were at this time last year, cases are increasing in several parts of the country. Region 6, which includes Arkansas, Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, and New Mexico, is particularly hard hit. Region 7, with the Midwestern states of Iowa, Kansas, Nebraska, and Missouri, also has rising case rates. However, rates are down in the Mid-Atlantic and New England. In addition, COVID-19 hospitalizations are up slightly around the country. Aspirin used to be routinely recommended for people who might be at risk for cardiovascular disease. More recently, however, doctors have discouraged most people from taking this anti-clotting pain reliever for prevention. Cardiologists are still recommending low-dose aspirin for patients who have had heart attacks. A new study to be presented at the European Association for the Study of Diabetes suggests that 100 milligrams of aspirin daily may have an unexpected benefit. It appears to reduce the risk of developing type 2 diabetes by 15% in older people. Over 16,000 volunteers were randomized to receive either low-dose aspirin or placebo. They were followed for about five years. Those taking aspirin had better blood sugar control than those on placebo. They were also more likely to develop intestinal bleeding, however. No one should ever take aspirin regularly without medical supervision. Many neuroscientists believe that Alzheimer's disease results from the buildup of amyloid plaque in the brain. As a result, drug companies have been spending billions on developing medications to remove this sticky peptide from the brains of patients. Until recently, most of the trials were disappointing. Last year, however, the FDA approved lecanemab, even though the clinical benefit was modest. It slowed the cognitive decline somewhat, but did not reverse the symptoms of dementia. A clinical trial of a different anti-amyloid drug, solanezumab, has just been published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Nearly 1,200 volunteers tested in the normal range for cognitive function, but had elevated levels of amyloid in their brains. The investigators hoped that by treating patients, even before they developed symptoms of cognitive impairment, they could prevent people from developing Alzheimer's disease. The patients took solanezumab or an identical-appearing placebo throughout the study. 
At the end, the researchers concluded solanezumab did not slow the progression of cognitive and functional decline in persons with preclinical Alzheimer's disease as compared with placebo over a period of four and a half years. The disappointing results might push the FDA to reevaluate the amyloid hypothesis of Alzheimer's disease causation. The FDA does not monitor dietary supplements for quality. A new study published in the Journal of Dietary Supplements reveals the problem with this lack of oversight. Millions of people take supplements of omega-3 fatty acids. These products are frequently derived from fish, krill, or algae. They're thought to provide anti-inflammatory health benefits. Scientists evaluated 72 popular brands of omega-3 supplements. The researchers used three different measures to detect oxidation or rancidity. Nearly two-thirds of the flavored supplements were overly oxidized. Roughly 13% of the unflavored pills also failed the test for rancidity. This is likely to diminish the health benefits of these supplements. The authors suggest exercising caution when it comes to flavored fish oil. At one time, only physicians could order laboratory tests such as thyroid-stimulating hormone or cholesterol. Now many companies offer laboratory tests online, direct to consumers. Some utilize finger-prick drops of blood. Others require patients to use a walk-in laboratory. There is a discrepancy between the technical terms of service that such companies use and the marketing, which implies that the results are medically useful. There's a great deal of variability between companies regarding data privacy as well. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. Most people have put COVID-19 in the rearview mirror, but cases have been rising over the last several weeks. The CDC reports that hospitalizations are up nationally. At last count, more than 20,000 patients were receiving COVID care in hospitals around the country. The virus continues to mutate. And although some experts say it may be less virulent, it can still make some people quite ill. What have we learned over the last three years of the pandemic? We know that this virus is primarily transmitted through the air. That means that air quality is crucial if we want to reduce the spread of respiratory infections like COVID-19, influenza, or respiratory syncytial virus. How well have institutions responded to the challenges of improving ventilation? How would you know if the store, bank, restaurant, or doctor's office has good air quality? Shouldn't all these institutions inform us about their standards of air quality, even before we walk in the door? How many air exchanges do they have in an hour, and what kind of filters are they using? To learn more about the issues of ventilation and air filtration, we turn to Dr. Prasad Kasibatla. He is Professor of Environmental Chemistry and Senior Associate Dean of Research and Doctoral Programs at the Nicholas School of the Environment at Duke University. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Prasad Kasibatla. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. 
We're delighted to have you in studio. And I guess the first question is, Dr. Kasi Butler, what is your research background? What have you been doing for the last several decades? So um, my educational background, I have a PhD degree in chemical engineering, undergraduate and PhD degrees in chemical engineering. After my undergraduate degree, I got interested in working in a field where I could apply my chemical engineering background but to problems that are not traditional chemical engineering, like design a chemical plant or something. And as I was looking around, I got interested in atmospheric chemistry research because the atmospheric atmosphere is really one large chemical reactor, if you will. And so my PhD focused on issues related to acid rain at that time in the 80s. Uh, and then I worked at, the, uh, at a lab, a climate modeling lab in Princeton, where we were looking essentially at the impact of emissions associated with human activities over the last 100, 150 years on the chemical composition of the atmosphere, both at regional pollution-type events and also how the chemical composition of the atmosphere has changed globally from things like fossil fuel combustion, clearing of landscapes with fires for agriculture, things like that. And so a lot of my research has to do with how have humans changed the chemical composition of the atmosphere and what are the consequences of that from a health perspective, from an agricultural productivity perspective. And when I talk about chemical composition, I'm talking about both particles in the atmosphere, particle pollution, as well as pollutants like ozone that we talk about. And that leads us directly to the issue that we're really concerned about these days, and that is viral particles in our personal environments. How did you get interested in that particular issue as it refers to COVID-19? So I had been working for quite a few years on particulate pollution outdoors. And when the pandemic hit, in August, in the summer of 2020, we were asked at Duke whether we want to teach in person in the fall of 2020 or not. And as I was thinking about it, I thought, hmm, maybe I could calculate my risk um, and the risk of my students uh, for contracting COVID indoors. And I started doing some digging. People had done some work on this, had built some elementary risk models. And so at that point, I kind of got interested in building my own model to calculate risk. We actually, at that point, created a online risk calculator, if you will, for, for classroom settings. And that's how I kind of really got into it. And that's I've been working on that since for the, then on research aspects of it for the last two, two and a half years in close collaborations with my colleagues elsewhere. we have so, been real pioneers on this. So you actually made this model the, at least the first iteration of it, available to your other colleagues. Because yeah. a lot of professors were asked this question, right. will you, or some of them were told, you will teach in person. And um, people wanted to know, well, how dangerous is it in right. fall of 2020 going into winter of 2021? Right. How dangerous is it? Right. So... What sorts of things go into the model? I don't want you to do right. all the mathematics. I think we probably would get lost <laughs> on that. You know, I think it's important to point out at that point, early on in the pandemic, the traditional understanding was that transmission was occurring when people were coughing or sneezing. They were 
um, emitting these virus part embedded in respiratory droplets that were large. They would fall out within six feet or so. Right. And here's the maintain six feet maintain of distance, feet distance from somebody right. else and you'll be safe, which right. turned out not to be quite right. true. And the way trans- the traditional view was the way transmission was occurring was that we were expelling these respiratory droplets containing the virus. They were impacting your mucous membranes if you were close enough, if an infected person was close to a susceptible person, or they were depositing on surfaces, somebody would touch it and transfer it to their nose and mouth. That was the traditional view. But I think I I knew of people in the aerosol community who had been working on thinking, rethinking this, and there was quite a bit of evidence at that time that we were actually exhaling enough drop microscopic droplets that stayed in the air for long enough that they would disperse, not fall out within six feet, but disperse in typical room, what in tip, across rooms that are typical sizes. Well, I remember talking with Dr. Lindsay Marr yes. at Virginia Tech and saying, you know, think of it like smoke. Right. If somebody's smoking a cigarette right. in a room right. and if you can smell it, Right. You're breathing it. Right. Lindsay has been one of the real pioneers in this. She's done, you know, the pioneering work. I think Lindsay Marr, Don Milton, Kathy Noakes over in the over in the UK, they have done very pioneering work on this. I think the smoke analogy is excellent. I would correct that a little bit in the sense that the smoke particles sizes are roughly the kind of particle sizes we're talking about. And so it's a good analogy, but it's a good visual analogy mm-hmm, in terms of right. how the smoke spreads. It's not as good an analogy when you think of smell, because what you're smelling is the gases in the smoke, not the particles. Uh-huh. And the reason I think it's important is when people say, well, I wear a mask, but I can still smell the smoke. Mm-hmm. That's not really relevant. So the particles are being blocked by the mask, the particles but are the being gases mo- still smell are going through. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of people now think oh, it's over. I don't have to worry about COVID anymore. It's, it's on the downward slope, if not completely disappeared. And it's not just SARS-CoV-2. Terry and I were visiting family. It was a um, it was a memorial service. memorial service for Terry's parents who had died during the pandemic, and uh, we all had tested. We all were negative, and then we came home and we were all so sick. And we now speculate that it was human metanumovirus. It was the worst cold. I have ever had. It was terrible. And the cough lasted. Joe was coughing for six weeks. And so were one or two of the other people who caught it. It was very transmissible because we all got it. And apparently there was this epidemic of HMPV right, right around there in the middle of March. In March. And uh, we are now, just, and nobody's ever heard of this thing before. So, well, I mean, it was well, disco- scientists. Have. It was discovered in the early two thousands, but it's not something that people think about a lot. So, even when transmission of COVID is not at a high level, there are other things out there right. that are transmitted through aerosol. Well, I think there is, I think, increasing evidence that 
a variety of respiratory viruses are actually transmitted by aerosols. And, and, and that route of aerosol transmission is probably important and maybe even dominant mode of transmission compared to being ballistic spray of large droplets on your face or you transferring stuff from surfaces to your mucous membranes. I think it's important to understand a couple of things here, if I may. Part of that confusion early on came about because I think there was a misunderstanding of the sizes of droplets that could travel for the, could stay afloat for long enough to be dispersed in a room. That was incorrect by a factor of 20, which means in terms of a volume, of the, it was off by a factor of 4,000 or 8,000 or something. So it was a big difference. I think there was also a lack of understanding that we put out enough of these particles of these smaller sizes that stayed afloat that carried enough virus to kind of transmit. So I think that was, and then I think we got hung up on this distinction whether to call it airborne or not. Mm-hmm. There was a community really pushing that airborne should be said. There was a community saying, no, airborne is, I think the correct way I think about it is, I think about, I, call, I refer to it as airborne transmission by inhalation of aerosols. I think the fact that the transmission is occurring because we're inhaling these, I think that inhalation term is important to stress. You're listening to Dr. Prasad Kasibatla, Professor of Environmental Chemistry and Senior Associate Dean of Research and Doctoral Programs of the Nicholas School of the Environment at Duke University. Dr. Kasibatla is an expert on atmospheric chemistry. After the break, we'll climb into our time machine and hearken back 150 years to Florence Nightingale. What could she teach us about indoor air quality? Have we improved ventilation in school buildings and offices? Uh, How should we tackle that project? There are places with great ventilation, like hospitals and high-tech manufacturing facilities. How do other places stack up? We have standards for outdoor air pollution, What about indoor air pollution? Could we use carbon dioxide as a marker for adequate ventilation? How would that work? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs dot com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. September is Healthy Aging Month, and you can take care of your heart and brain health by adding cocoflavanols to your daily routine for cardiovascular and cognitive support. More information at cocovia.com. We're talking about air quality today. 
Airborne germs will always be with us, but can we minimize our exposure with ventilation and air filtration? How can we apply the lessons that Florence Nightingale discovered more than a century ago? Our guest today is an expert on air quality. Dr. Prasad Kasibatla is Professor of Environmental Chemistry and Senior Associate Dean of Research and Doctoral Programs at the Nicholas School of the Environment at Duke University. Dr. Kasibatla, you have just suggested that it's an important distinction to pay attention to airborne transmission by inhalation. Why is that particular formulation so critical? I think for a couple of reasons. I think if we realize that it's inhalation, we start thinking about measures to protect ourselves from an inhalation perspective as opposed to, you know, six feet versus further. Um, or washing everything or, or washing disinfecting everything. Exactly. it. So, for example, using the right kind of mass, both to prevent vi- to or reduce the amount of virus that is being emitted to the environment by the infected person, as well as for susceptible person, reducing the amount of virus that is inhaled by them. And to think about measures like ventilation and air filtration to reduce the airborne burden of this virus so that you inhale less of it and thereby reduce your risk. Have we learned anything from COVID-19? I mean, here it is. How many people have been infected? Millions, tens of millions in this country, hundreds of millions around the world. And a lot of people have died. And now a lot of people have long COVID. And the question comes up is, you know, what are we doing differently to prevent catching the latest viral infection that's circulating? Whether it's SARS-CoV-2 or human metanumovirus or or respiratory syncytial virus or influenza XYZ. And we know that there are sometimes long consequences. You know, it's like a lot of people, oh, it's just a common cold. I'll get over it in a week, 10 days, nothing to worry about. Who cares? Well, if you have long COVID, you care. If you have chronic fatigue syndrome, you care. If you have fibromyalgia, you care. And so the idea of, all right, going back to Florence Nightingale and the hospitals that she was dealing with in what, what, Era, Terry? <laughs> the 19th century, Joe, the mid-19th 1870, century. 1870, <laughs> And she said, open the windows. Let's get some air in this hospital. Have we improved the ventilation in our offices, in our schools, in our hospitals, in our homes? And how would we even go about doing that? So a couple of things. I think my own personal sense, and you know, this is not my expert, is that that understanding is out there. It may be patchy. Sometimes it's politicized. There have been improvements in some places. It's been spotty. Some places have taken it seriously. Some schools have improved things. I know Duke looked very carefully at their ventilation systems and stuff. I think the important message from, at least from the science perspective of COVID transmission, is that you need layered protections. Mm -hmm. So Six feet, for example. It turns out actually staying further away from six feet is helpful because inhalation, the transmission risk is closer 
the is higher closer up. It's just like if you're encountering a smoker, you'd rather be breathing their smoke farther away, few, farther away than right in their face. So right. even from an inhalation perspective, any distance helps. Right, it dilutes it a little. Masking helps. It both from the from the infected person perspective and from the susceptible person. And it especially helps if everyone is wearing if a everyone's mask. Everyone's wearing mask. Yes. So universal masking helps. Ventilation helps. Air filtration helps if you can't ventilate adequately, or in places where ventilation may be an issue. For example, if there are if there's bad polluted air outside, you know that's. So I think these layered idea that you should go through these layered things. And then there are other tools, right? Like at Duke, for example, I felt very comfortable in the fall of 2020 teaching in person because we were requiring masking. They had really looked at their ventilation system, upgraded to MOV 13 filters and stuff in their ventilation systems. And they were testing everybody, all the students, twice a week. So Mm -hmm. the chance that an infected person would be in my classroom – was low. It was at so least it was limited. Kind of this, yeah. But the question I think, and this is beyond my expertise, is, you know, and this I think public health professionals, even psychologists, have to, you know, what do you keep in place for how long? I think from a policy perspective, the cost of all of this. I mean, I think it's clear that we should be improving ventilation and air filtration in all these places. That's something if you can do, you don't have to get into these battles of masking versus, or it becomes less of an issue, right? So, One of the things that fascinates me is that hospitals have had pretty good ventilation and filtration for years. And if you were to go into a silicon chip factory, they are obsessive. I mean, right. you know, the, the, right. they have particulate control that's beyond anything that right. the rest of us mortals can even imagine. Right. And yet a lot of people go, yeah, but it doesn't matter if I want to go into my dentist's office, if I want to go shopping, if I want to go to the bank. I, I, I don't need to think or worry about the air quality in those places. And I'm, I'm kind of hoping that maybe the pandemic would have taught us something about the standards that you're talking about, not just in hospitals or in operating rooms or in chip factories, but for the rest of us, because we are always going to be exposed to viral infection. I think, Joe, that's an excellent point. Um, and there is talk, whether it will happen or, you know, we have in the U.S. outdoor air quality standards for a variety of pollutants, that they should not exceed certain thresholds. You have to come up with plans to make sure that you meet those thresholds. And I think the time is ripe to think seriously about indoor air quality standards. It's not just viral infections, right? There's increasing evidence, for example, that when you use gas stoves in poorly ventilated environments, there's all these chemicals that are being created that have very bad health effects. There's stuff coming out of paints and walls and, you know, materials and and carpet, things like that, that are actually not good to breathe. So I think the time is really ripe to, and there's a lot of work being done on kind of characterizing indoor air pollution, trying to understand all that. But I think the time is right to really start thinking seriously about enforceable standards and that could be either setting standards or it could be mandating the use of the best available technologies for, you know, making sure that the indoor environment is safe. Yeah. I'd really like to go back to those gas stoves 
because it's turned into a big political event. Yeah. I mean, it's like, are you kidding? Take away my gas stove. That's crazy. What's wrong with you? And yet it's possible to use a gas stove and have a ventilation system exactly. that would be highly effective. Yes. I mean, I think if you turn on your fan, your hood, that mm -hmm. makes a huge difference. As right? long as your hood vents to the outside. As long as your hood vents to the outside. Or, you know, if it's not venting to the outside, there's enough air, resupply air being so that this it's fresh air or it's filtered somehow. But then you have to also get rid of the gases, which is hard to. Right, so. But the but the point is that we haven't even thought about that. I think they're starting to think about it, but I mean the the scale of changes, and I think I see this in a variety of places. Same thing with climate change, right? We all are now; it's on our consciousness. We have a sense of what we want to do. The science is still uncertain, but it's we know enough that we need to do something, and the scale of change that is needed is enormous. Is huge, and yes. we keep pecking away at this. I mean, this is you know in part. This involves political scientists and policy people. It's beyond my experience, but it's just striking to me. But you said something that I, I really find hard to, to comprehend. We have standards for outdoor air quality, correct? Right. But we spend more time indoors. We spend so much more time indoors. 90% of our time yeah. is indoors, and we don't have standards. Yeah, Richard Corsi, who is dean at, um, I think it's UC Davis. Davis. Yes. He has been, you know, pushing this issue of indoor air quality. He's got very nice information on how much time we spend indoors and the need for air and the various sources of indoor air pollution. So I think there's a community of scientists who's been pushing that. It's not got general acceptance, I think. So I think you're right. We don't think about it other than in certain niche settings. Dr. Kasibatla, what about carbon dioxide as a signal? Yes. In other words, when you put a lot of humans together in a small room that doesn't have good ventilation, it doesn't take long before the carbon dioxide levels start to mount. In fact, if you have a couple of dogs in your house, <laughs> they, can, they can raise the carbon dioxide level too. <laughs> and um, I'm just curious as to whether or not it makes sense to have carbon dioxide monitors. They're relatively inexpensive. You can buy one, a decent one, for under $150 and maybe even under 100 in some cases. So, you know, you could have carbon dioxide monitors in hospitals, in restaurants, in office buildings, in schools, and that would tell you really fast whether or not you're having good ventilation. So, Joe, that's an excellent point. I think you know, let me start by saying carbon dioxide, excellent tracer, like you said, uh, can give you a good signal of fresh air ventilation. Now, you could have air filtration in the room, HEPA filters, which mitigate your risk of any transmission. doesn't do anything to carbon dioxide. And the reason is because humans exhale very high concentrations of carbon dioxide. We measure carbon dioxide concentration, something called parts per million. That is, if you take a million molecules of air, there's roughly 400 million outside. So outside is roughly 400, 410 million uh, for, uh, parts per million, 400, 410 parts per million. We put out 40,000 parts per million. So here's a simple rule of thumb. If you measure carbon dioxide and you measure 800 parts per million or 1,200 parts per million, 
you take your measurement, subtract 400 from that. So if I take 800, I subtract 400, I'm left with 400. Divided by 400, I'm left with one. That tells you that 1% of the air you're breathing in has come from someone's lungs. Very simple rule. If it's 1,200, 1,200 minus 400 is 800. Divided by 400 is 2, 2%. It's a very simple rule of thumb. And so if you were, so, you know, there's this kind of ad hoc thing. Let's try to keep the amount of rebreathed air down to 1%, which means let's try to keep the um, CO2 below 800 ppm in a room. Which means bringing in fresh air. Yes. So, in fact, I remember um, I was doing my sabbatical in Boulder, working with people like Jose Menes on this. We gathered in my little apartment for dinner. Jose had a CO2 monitor. I had my CO2 monitor. We kept all our side windows cross flow open, so we always were below 800 parts per million. So, yes. But what would happen if we were to take out a CO2 monitor in your classroom where there are, what, 20, 30 students, and it's a, a closed environment? At the end of an hour's lecture, what would the CO2 levels be in that classroom? I have actually done that measurement, and we are, we are always below 800 ppm because the air exchange rates that in the Duke classrooms that I was teaching in were pretty high. So you were in pretty good shape. Yes. But I am pretty sure there are places where they're not yeah. so good. Yeah. And if you go on the web or Twitter, there are a number of people posting their CO2 readings at various locations. For example, um, you know, airplanes, right? Mm -hmm. Airplanes they actually have very high effective air exchange. But I mean effective in the sense they may not be bringing in fresh air, but they're passing the air through the filters. Right. So it fil is filtered, but you said that filters don't necessarily take the car. The they don't CO2 take the CO2. Out. So CO2 there is not a good measure, mm -hmm. right? Uh, because from an aerosol perspective, they're very good, but CO2 is not giving you. So CO2 has some limitations. But when you're boarding and deplaning, they often turn off their air handling systems. Right, right. And their CO2 is then giving you a good mm -hmm. indicator whether the risk is. And people have found that uh, deplaning or boarding, that's when your risk is high, at least from a CO2, what CO2 is telling you about the ventilation. So if you were in charge, if we were to say, okay, Dr. Kasibaba, you can change everything about indoor air quality, what would you do different? I would mandate minimum ventilation standards, both fresh air ventilation standards and air cleaning type systems, HEPA filters or things like that, in every space. Now I'm talking purely from the perspective of respiratory infections. In every space that I think is high risk. I think you can categorize, you can fairly easily get a sense of what areas are potentially high risk with some simple measurements. Such as? Schools with very poor ventilation systems, for example. Crowded restaurants, dining areas in restaurants, things like that. That's where, you know, if I had limited amount of resources, which I would if I was... I would, that's how I would start. I'd start with schools. I'd start with restaurant-type areas, things like that. And hopefully hospitals, yep. doctor's offices, yep. and uh, a lot of the other places where people who might be vulnerable are likely to congregate. 
And I think the other thing I'll add, the people who are, I think, uh, affected disproportionately are vulnerable people, poor people. And I think we have an ethical obligation, a moral obligation to fix these places. I think that's very important. Dr. Prasad Kastibatha, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Well, John Terry, this was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Dr. Prasad Kasibatla, Professor of Environmental Chemistry and Senior Associate Dean of Research and Doctoral Programs of the Nicholas School of the Environment at Duke University. One simple way, relatively simple anyway, to improve air filtration is to build your own Corsi box. That's C-O-R-S-I. We had the honor of talking with Dr. Richard Corsi about a year ago. He's an internationally recognized expert on indoor air quality. Dr. Corsi described an inexpensive, homemade air filtration system. Tests show that it's surprisingly effective. You can listen to the podcast and learn more about how to make your own Corsi box by going to the show notes for today's episode. It's number 1,357 at peoplespharmacy.com. After the break, we'll talk with Dr. Kasibatla's colleague, Dr. Jose Jimenez. He, he mentioned having dinner with Dr. Jimenez, and they both had their carbon dioxide monitors going strong. His expertise is in aerosols. What exactly are they? Where did the six-foot rule for avoiding COVID-19 come from? And why is it so misleading? Is ultraviolet radiation the solution to neutralizing dangerous pathogens? How else can we limit transmission of airborne germs like influenza, COVID-19, or... Or respiratory syncytial virus. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of the most proven and concentrated flavanol extract in the market today, CocoPro, cocoa extract. September is Healthy Aging Month, and a reminder that it's never too late to get started on better health practices, like finding a wellness routine that works for you. Part of that routine can be adding clinically proven cocoflavanols to your daily regimen. Whether you're looking to prioritize your heart health or your brain health, you can find a supplement to fit your needs with Cocovia. All Cocovia supplements contain the number one bioactive flavanols, CocoPro, backed by more than 20 years of research. These powerful bioactive nutrients are clinically proven to promote cardiovascular health and improve cognitive function as you age, so you can stay physically active and mentally sharp for healthy years ahead. Get 20% off all Cocovia products from September 18th through October 2nd using the discount code AGEWELLPOD at Cocovia.com. That again is AGEWELLPOD at Cocovia.com. 
These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. September is Healthy Aging Month, and you can take care of your heart and brain health by adding cocoflavanols to your daily routine for cardiovascular and cognitive support. More information at cocovia.com. Our topic today is air quality. One might think that our public health officials would have made ventilation and air filtration a high priority after the COVID-19 pandemic. But we fear that very few institutions have taken the necessary steps to really improve air quality. We turn now to Dr. Jose Jimenez, Distinguished Professor in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Dr. Jimenez is also a fellow in the Cooperative Institute for Research in the Environmental Sciences. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Jose Jimenez. Thanks for having me. Dr. Jimenez, COVID, it's forced us to rethink everything we thought we knew about infectious diseases and air quality. I think a lot of your colleagues have reconsidered how we catch colds, influenza, other respiratory tract infections. So let's start with your area of expertise, and that is aerosols. What are they? Why should we be concerned about breathing tiny particles that might be infectious? Um, aerosols are used little balls of, of a liquid or a solid that float in the air. They are they're so small that they don't fall to the ground. If you throw sand to the ground, sand into the air, it will it will fall down very quickly. But aerosols are much smaller, are not visible, and they stay floating in the air. For the infectious ones, when we talk, even when we breathe, we exhale little bits of our respiratory fluid or our saliva, and they go into the air and they float around. And if we're infected um, by a respiratory virus like the like the COVID virus then some of these little balls of saliva of respiratory fluid that are leaving us and are floating in the air may contain the virus. And if someone else was to breathe that air, that's how they can get COVID. So that's that's the key reason why we're concerned about it. Well, there was a lot of confusion in the beginning about six feet. So if you were seven feet away from somebody who had COVID, you were home free, no worries. If you were three feet from them, uh uh-oh, you were in trouble. Why was that a misnomer? Well, um, that <laughs> that's a complicated question to answer, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to be brief. So the, the idea that was prevalent in medical circles before the pandemic is that respiratory viruses were transmitted by very large droplets, what we call it, which are basically projectiles that are, are large enough to be seen. Sometimes you're talking to someone who's too animated or they're coughing or something, and you see these this little projectiles of saliva or respiratory fluid that are flying from them and landing somewhere very quickly. So it was thought that that's how how the virus was transmitted. So and if you were far enough, those were going to fall into the ground, right? And six feet was a was a rule of thumb. 
Now, what we understood during the pandemic, or we rediscovered really, is that that, that, was, uh, that was wrong. The conclusion that six feet was safe or that was, was based on an empirical observation that when people kept a higher distance from infected people from respiratory diseases, there, were, there was less additional infection, there was less transmission. So we kept a more distance, that was good. Now, that's an empirical observation, but it was misinterpreted. It was thought that it was due to gravity, that uh, these droplets were falling to the ground and therefore they will infect the other person. The reality is that the observation is explained instead by dilution, that when you are farther by someone else, you're breathing less of the air that they are exhaling, just like if you are talking to a smoker, but you are six feet away instead of two feet away, you're going to end up breathing a lot less smoke. So it was an error in physics of, of how these droplets and aerosols behave in the air. So dilution, the real answer, was confused with gravity. And the error was made by medical doctors who don't study physics and who were very resistant to input from the scientific fields who understood this. So that's a lot of, of what we spent during the, the pandemic trying to, to illuminate that error. Dr. Jimenez, we have spoken previously with um, experts in aerosol transmission. We've talked about air filtration. We've talked about increasing the turnover of fresh air. What we'd like to ask you about is ultraviolet radiation, because we understand that you are an expert on how that affects some of these transmissible pathogens in aerosols. Can you tell us how this would work? Yes, so ultraviolet radiation, it has been known for basically a century. In the 1930s, there was um, uh, one of the pioneers in airborne disease transmission who decided to install ultraviolet lights in schools. And he was able to show that transmission of diseases like measles uh, would be reduced by having these lights, right? And the idea is basically the measles virus in this case is floating in these aerosols in the air because one of the kids is infected and the other kids can get infected if they breathe in over time the air that the infected kid is exhaling and that's floating in the classroom. Imagine what one of the kids is smoking and then that smoke that spreads around the classroom is a virus, right? So then the idea was that with this UV light, this has enough energy that it can kill the virus or more properly deactivate the virus and then the other, the, the other kids in the classroom would still breathe in this virus, but it would no longer be infective because it has been exposed to this UV light that has deactivated it. Well, it sounds great. And, and I'm guessing that this goes back probably a couple of centuries because I remember tuberculosis patients were wheeled outdoors to be in the sunshine. The idea, I guess, being that somehow there was something about the the light that could kill bacteria and viruses and other pathogens. And so you've just provided us with a study that, that says, yeah, ultraviolet radiation, it could be beneficial. But you've dug a little deeper, if I understand correctly, and maybe UV is not the panacea to all viral transmission. Yes, and... and it is un unfortunate, you know, but but um, but we have been investigating it over the last year, because um, 
for a similar reason that UV light is a very good disinfectant because it has so much energy in its photons that it can damage these molecules that, that the virus is, is composed of or, or a bacterium like tuberculosis. It also has enough energy to break up or modify molecules in the air and, and create air pollution. And um, and really, it was thought that this was, you know, yes, it can create air pollution, but it was very small, and this was a small effect no, not worth worrying about. But we are showing that this is not the case, that, that the concern about pollution is real, and in some cases, you could do more damage with the pollution than you're helping with the disinfection. So, you know, so it's not, you know... You know, I have some some colleagues who, before we we published these results, were thinking that we were going to install basically UV lights everywhere, and then we would eliminate airborne diseases that way. So instead of maybe having to to take vaccines, you just will go into the mall, into the airport, into a plane, and there will be UV light everywhere, and then the virus wouldn't stand the chance of transmitting to someone else. But unfortunately. This doesn't seem doable, and we need to be a lot more careful. I think UV disinfection is still useful, and you know I would be very happy if it was used in, for example, in airplanes or when I go into the emergency room in the hospital in the waiting area. You know, it would be great to put UV there, but I wouldn't put it at home, or I wouldn't put it necessarily in a classroom or or in certain areas where you know where the risk is lower and and the disbenefit over time may may be more important. How would a UV uh, system, for example, in an emergency room or an airplane be implemented? Are, are people going to be exposed to the ultraviolet light themselves? Um, th- there are two types of systems. There is kind of the, the traditional uh, type that we have used for um, for 100 years. Those lights, um, if your skin gets exposed to it, you basically get some skin burns. So those are always basically pointing up or exposing the air at the top of the room, but not exposing people. Now, there is a new type of of UV that uses a different wavelength. And and that wavelength, which is 222 nanometers, it has the property that is basically absorbed by the dead dead layer of skin that that we all have, or basically by the layer of liquid that's in front of your eyes. So that wavelength, you can actually just put it like a regular lamp and it, could, it can shine on people directly. On the other hand, it still has this property of creating air pollution. Yeah, and in fact, um, I mean, the, the, the doctors and practitioners in this field, you know, had been working with the traditional system that you have to put in the top of the room. And that's kind of annoying because it has to be, you know, it limits, you know, where you can do it and you have to be careful and whatever. And they were very excited about this new type of light that, that you can shine directly on people. And and unfortunately, what we're showing is that that that's also the more polluting kind. So, you know, each of the lights may, may find a place, but... But these new lights that, that some people thought were really the silver bullet, they are not the silver bullet. They are, they are a tool but that we have to use judiciously. So that leads us to ask about other ways that uh, we could reduce the transmission of these airborne diseases like COVID. Well, I, I think those are very well understood, even if some of them have become politically controversial. So we know that transmission is much uh, less outdoors. So whatever you can do outdoors, 
you know, meeting with your family, whatever, dinners, whatever, um, do outdoors. If you have to be indoors with other people uh, during periods of high disease transmission, then ventilation helps. So use opening the windows or, or having a ventilation system that, that brings in outdoor air and takes the air from indoors that has a virus and puts it outside. Sometimes, you know, during the, like, for example, with the forest smoke, forest fire smoke that we, we have often this, this summer, that is a problem because if you're in New York and it's very smoky outside, you don't want to open the windows because right. of, the, of the outdoor pollution. So in that case, filtration is, again, a you know, century-old technique that works very well. So you can have a HEPA filter or actually a low-cost filter that's what we call the Corsi Rosenthal boxes, and there are different ways. With, but with materials from a store like Home Depot, you can build yourself a filter that costs maybe $100, and works just as well as a commercial one that will cost you $800. And and that basically removes the viruses and the pollution and the smoke from the air and deposits in the filter. And when the filter is dirty after a few months or whatever, you change it. So that's really what we recommend. Then there is a whole family of other techniques which don't try, so don't try to put the virus outside or don't try to capture it in a filter, but leave the virus floating in the air, but try to deactivate it. And we will really talk about how UV uh, works in that way. And, and that's the one that, that, as I said, under certain conditions, it can be very useful. There are a lot of other techniques that are being sold that have um, uh, different oxidizers, hydroxyl generators, and they go by many different names. But they all have, you know, basically, in my opinion, very misleading marketing where they say, oh, filters don't really work and you should use this new thing that um, that is much better. But they all create pollution. And some of them don't even work for disinfection. I, I would call them a scam. Unfortunately, billions and billions of dollars of federal money have been spent installing this in schools, in different places, and people buy them. But it's it's a problem we're trying trying to work on, but but the industry is very litigious. We we signed a letter with some colleagues to to point out one of these techniques that we thought was a scam, and then a colleague was sued, and we were all subpoenaed. And and basically, what I worked with the Attorney General of Colorado, and what they told me is they are trying to intimidate you. They are using the legal system as a weapon to intimidate you on not talking about their their technique not working. Dr. Jimenez, this whole issue of air quality has become politicized. I mean, you know, people who wear masks these days are, are, are in a sense, being criticized. You know, like, how can you wear a mask? Shame on you. And yet all of our public facilities, I don't care if it's a bank, a supermarket, a pharmacy, schools, doctor's offices even, it's like nobody is paying attention to air quality. We've kind of ignored this issue. And I guess in in the last minute that we have today with you, why is air quality so important? And why should our public health officials be spending more time coming up with solutions why has it become so politicized? Why don't we do something to make air better? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a, a key problem is that air is invisible. So, you know, you go somewhere that's well ventilated or poorly ventilated, it's hard to notice. We've been arguing the whole pandemic that we should have 
monitors displaying the carbon dioxide concentration indoors everywhere where we share the air. So whether you're going to an airplane, an airport, a restaurant, we should always be seeing the CO2 concentration. This tells us how much exhaled air is accumulated there. I go every time I travel, I, I do threads on Twitter explaining what I see at the airport, the hotel, at the restaurant. It's often bad, as, as, as you described it. But, so it's trying to make the invisible visible. You know, but it, it really needs to be mandated by by the government. And, and we're in a political situation where um, basically it's easy to, to take a cheap shot at, at, at something that people don't understand to try to score political points. And we, we've seen that, for example, with gas stoves. We, we now know very well that they produce very dangerous pollution and we should be discouraging people from installing more and encouraging them to replace them by efficient electrical stoves like like from induction but but then you know it has become a political issue and then once it becomes political you know this it is just a different ball game dr jimenez one of the other methods that people have used to try to reduce transmission of these infectious airborne diseases is wearing masks and it has become very controversial. What can you tell us about masks, when they're effective and when they're not? Well, yeah, so this is a very important topic. Thanks for asking. And the answer is, is masks can be extremely effective, but you need a good mask that you wear very well, that fits your face very well. And this has basically not been explained. The CDC and other authorities have told us basically at the beginning of the pandemic is cut a t-shirt if you don't have anything else and put it in front of your face. And later we have been told that surgical masks are enough. And this is not true. We need N95s and we need to wear N95s during periods in which we carry our transmission, which fit well to our face, right? That you don't see any gap, for example, between the nose and the mask or between other places. And, and this is rare. What I saw on society at different points in the pandemic is that, you know, most people wore very poor quality masks that at best maybe would protect them 10 or 20%. And then some people would wear these KN95 masks, but the majority of them, the mask was kind of hanging for their face or they didn't bother adjust those metal pieces by the nose. So maybe it was protecting them 50%. So then when, when there are these studies where they study in a population, well, masks don't stop transmission very well. You know, you are trying to measure, you know, 20% in the real world in the presence of lots of other problems. But but this is there is no reason it should be that way. It is not that hard to explain to people, these are the good masks and this is how you wear them. Pay attention to it. Work with your husband, with your friend. Have them pay attention to how it fits your face, and if it if it becomes dislodged, have them you know tell you you know when you are when you're in public, and and it, it's really a wonderful public health intervention that works extremely well. My understanding is that masks work best when everyone is wearing one. Is that true? Yes, yes, because I mean masks do two things. If if I'm the one who's infected, they prevent the virus from you know, that, that I am exhaling from being in the air and then you cannot breathe it. Now, because the mask I'm wearing is not perfect, if you also are wearing one, it prevents the virus that's already floating in the air. It prevents you from breathing it. So so that's the best situation. If everybody wears high-quality masks, then the probability of transmission is very, very low. 
But even if other people don't wear masks, it, it is still, if you wear a very good mask, then it's still very, very helpful. Like, I, I still, you know, when I go on travel, for example, I was recently in a conference and I was in an airplane and all these airports, and I was wearing a very good quality N95 mask that basically I, I have measured it with equipment we have, and the efficiency for me is 99.99%. So basically, I know if I'm wearing the mask and I'm wearing it well, I'm not going to get infected. Dr. Jose Jimenez, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Dr. Jose Jimenez, Distinguished Professor in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Dr. Jimenez is also a fellow in the Cooperative Institute for Research in the Environmental Sciences. Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wadarski engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews, B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. September is Healthy Aging Month. And you can take care of your heart and brain health by adding cocoflavanols to your daily routine for cardiovascular and cognitive support. More information at cocovia.com. Today's show is number 1,357. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments about today's interview. What have you done to improve the air quality in your home? Have you used a carbon dioxide monitor to determine how much fresh air is circulating in your kitchen or your office? Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. When you listen to the podcast, you will learn more about ways to reduce your risks of catching a variety of respiratory infections, including a discussion of how to use high-quality masks correctly. There's also a link to instructions about making an inexpensive do-it-yourself Corsi box filtration system. At peoplespharmacy.com, you could sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about important health stories. When you subscribe, you also have regular access to information about our weekly podcast, so you can find out ahead of time what topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.